your trusted source for news and analysis about Chicago White Sox prospects and player development, covering the Major League Baseball draft and international market, plus the action in Kannapolis, Winston-Salem, Birmingham, and Charlotte. This is the Future Sox Podcast with your hosts, Mike Rankin and James Fox. Welcome to another episode of the Future Sox Podcast. My name is Mike Rankin. Thanks so much for being here with us every Tuesday. Thanks to the Blue Wire Network and SoxMachine.com. Go to SoxMachine.com, become a Patreon if you want to continue to support our product and allow us to continue to do things that we do all year long, every week. And you see on SoxMachine.com the dedication that not only Future Sox provides, but Jim Margulis, Josh Nelson, and everybody at the Sox Machine Group providing content for you. White Sox content today. James Fox is alongside us. He's the senior editor at Future Sox. And a special guest, Sleepy Harold. He's a contributor to Future Sox and Sox Machine as well. You can follow him on Twitter at Sleepy underscore Harold underscore. Steve Hasman, welcome back to the Future Sox podcast. It's always great to talk to you. I have so many things that I want to get to on this episode. We're talking international space. We have big league club stuff. We have Baseball America dropping the latest top 30 for the Chicago White Sox and rankings across the Major League Baseball. But first, let me ask you this. What are your overall impressions of the White Sox offseason to this point, given a brand new staff, some players added, some players lost? This is still a team, in my opinion, Sleepy, that can make some noise in the American League and honestly compete for the American League Central. But I'm just curious if you believe this offseason was, uh, it kind of tickled your fancy enough to say, yeah, this is fine. First, of course, you know, thanks for having me on. Again, always fun. The White Sox offseason, I mean, for me, it's like a big bucket of like, meh. They've made some necessary moves that, you know, finally getting a left-handed hitting outfielder, short up the rotation, got rid of the coaching staff, which, you know, that could be a whole episode in and of itself. But, you know, for the most part, like they kind of did what they had to do. And then they're still treading in these this water of like, well, if everything goes right, you know, with like if guys go back to form and stay healthy. I mean, if I put like a grade on it, like C, I guess, you know, like they did stuff to address glaring holes but they didn't address all of them so it kind of leaves you wanting more at least for me yeah I think that's fair I think a lot of Sox fans that resonates with them because especially for me I was glad to see that they signed a starter Uh, I was hoping maybe they could attack that market further but you know beggars can't be choosers I guess and the way that they're approaching second base and right field is something we've talked about a lot at future Sox and that leads me to this The White Sox are going internally at this point. Now, there's rumors that they could be attacking second base in uh, other ways via the trade market or even free agency left before opening day. But at this point, we're seeing some internal options, plus Leary and Oscar Colas in right field with Romy and Lenin among those who uh, look to project at second base to this point, Sleepy. And with that being said, we're talking about international signings. Those guys, not, not so much Romy, but when you look at the top 30, the White Sox are littered with international signings in their organization that are among their best prospects. And we just passed the international signing period of 2023. The White Sox picked up some pitching, a couple of outfielders, and some shortstops. 
how do you believe the White Sox did in the way that they approached the international signing period this year? And uh, your overall thoughts on their approach to getting their minor league system to where they are today? Yeah, so I mean, I know thus far they've they'd announced, I want to say, nine signings, at least according to Baseball America, last I checked. Going from last year when, you know, bringing in Oscar Colas and Eric Hernandez, that was kind of like, oh, Hernandez was the surprise. Like, they don't really do that too much where they're going in the higher profile teenage prospect type in that market. So it's like, okay, maybe they're going to switch it up a little bit. And then they kind of go back on that. I mean, Luis Reyes, he was a notable top 50, according to pipeline guy. So, I mean, there is that, but then they seem to be filling the, the rest of the class with lesser known guys. But as we've seen come through the system as of late, that's not necessarily a bad thing because they've had success with that. So, we all would want some more flashier names that we've been seeing bandied about on Baseball America or Pipeline or or whomever with the bigger bonus types. The Sox didn't do that. They still have money left to spend. So it's hopefully they spend it on some, you know, some pop-up Cuban players that seems to be kind of I mean, they did that last year with uh Chipei. So like that that was good. They spent the money. The worst case scenario for me is like they just have, I think what it was like around two point four million. Before, I know they have some Venezuelan signings coming through as well that haven't been announced. So, like, how much of that is left? Like, they just have a bunch of money sitting there. And, like, to trade it away would be foolish to me. I just want to see it be used. Bring in more players. Bring in more talent. Because you can get these guys, like, these lesser-known diamond-in-the-rough types that can help the system or help the big league club, like, as we're seeing now with, like, potentially uh, Lenin... You know, Jose Rodriguez is on the cusp. Christian Mena took big leaps. You know, Will Veras. Like, they've done well, but it's like, you know, come on, keep it going. Keep it going. So I think some frustration, mixed bag kind of so far on the class. It it could be boosted with like a higher profile, maybe Cuban signing or two once they're declared down the road. But I guess that's probably where where I'd be at. So I guess like looking at the class, Sleepy, like the... I feel like the difference is there's not like a Cuban headliner, right? Yeah, That's like what correct. they've done lately. There's usually like some $2 million Cuban headliner. And then, you know, there's some other like a group of interesting guys. The one thing that's a little bit different this time is like, while they didn't do that, the top signings are like 700,000, which is fairly significant. I mean, it, you know, it's, it's a lot different than just like signing a bunch of 300 K guys. So, you know, I know where Luis Reyes was like ranked, but he, he just, he seems a little bit different and a little bit more higher upside than maybe some have thought. I mean, he is the top rated Dominican pitcher in the class. And the fact that he's like thrown stateside as much as he has, I think like changes things. I do think he's more in line with, you know, like a high school draft pick, like a Matthew Thompson, Andrew Dahlquist type more closely than a typical international signing. But even in saying that, you know, a guy like Christian Mena is is vaulted up probably over some of those guys and signed for 250k so that that part i think is is interesting that they went pitching at the top but like you mentioned i mean even with the venezuelan signings that aren't official by the way yet they should have two million so you're looking at maybe like a, a a cuban that comes free it seemed like when marco patty talked to the media they didn't seem to indicate 
that they would be like looking to trade the money. He kind of said like, oh, let's see like who we can land a little bit later. So that I guess is the most interesting part. And then Mike, I know we talked about like on our last podcast, like I joked that, you know, they weren't going to announce the signings and then they announced the signings like at a timely matter, like the rest of baseball would on Monday. It makes me think about the way they release their rosters on the minor league side. Mm-hmm. It's always like the day of oh, yeah. like, <laughs> the we're, morning. We're of. writing minor league previews and I'm reaching out to public relations people like at Winston Salem. And they're like giving me hotel information for the players. <laughs> and like, that's how I get, you know, it's, they're just like, please don't tell anybody I gave you this. I'm like, okay. I just like, I just want the article written, right? Like we won't release it until the white Sox announce, but I just need the names to write them down. James, I know you had some information that you wanted to share as well about the international signing class and what Marco Patti had to say. Well, just, you know, so he did talk, which is good. Like, just look at this from the standpoint of they do still have $2 million to spend at some point. There are all sorts of Cuban free agents. You know, I'm hoping that they spend that money and that the class looks a little bit better and that there's like some Venezuelan signings coming to like round out the class. But just like some of the stuff he said like Luis Reyes is a guy who I think we will be ranking in our top 30, like at some point over the next 18 months, I don't think he's going to make our next one just because I mean, we, we rarely rank um, international prospects from the previous year, unless they're like a highly ranked guy or like an older Cuban. But you know, he just said that he's a power arm that has three pitches, power fastball slider and a change uh, good mechanics. He's sprouted up to like six, I've seen 6'2 and 6'3 and like 185 pounds and 190. But I mean, when he was signed, you know, he was listed at Pipeline at 5'10, 130. So who knows how big he's going to get? Um, I would be curious to see. Like, I heard he's going to the DSL, but I mean, you know, it's another situation where next year he's probably in Canapolis and then we see kind of like how quickly he can move. Now, he was one of the only guys that we really knew anything about. Abraham Nunez Jr is like their second signing. Also, He's an outfielder. Speed and power, Patty says, but he has a feel for the strike zone, knows how to adjust to pitches, recognize breaking ball, sprays the ball all over the field, very aggressive. He's played in tournaments too, like in the Dominican where he did extremely well. So, um, you know, they've just, Patty's done a decent job with guys like this, which, you know, I found interesting. And then just like the last thing, the Juan Uribe Jr. is a story, obviously, because of, who his father is. Um, Patty talked about his hitting ability. Look, it's a $200,000 signing. Um, so who knows what it'll be. I think the most significant part there is that Juan senior has a, uh, he has like a training facility down in the Dominican Mike. And I know when we talked to Maria Torres and like a lot of people who talk about those sort of things, like the kids that are like staying at those facilities and whatnot. So to me, it seems like a pipeline for the future, potentially, you know, like you you keep this relationship going with Uribe and then who knows what kind of talent like he could funnel to you later. They did, I think, the the other pitcher that they signed in the class, I think, was only like 10K or something. But he was uh, he was living in Uribe's facility, too. So, you know, Marco Patti typically very high on the players that he signed. The thing to look forward to, I guess to just keep an eye on going forward is like the remaining 2 million in funds that they have, whether they use that to sign somebody that, that breaks free and establishes residency or whether they trade it like sleepy kind of alluded to. Well, I love to hear that there's opportunity uh, resources for 
players and potential big league hopefuls in the Dominican to uh, work on their game because I think it's a luxury a lot of the players in the United States have that doesn't necessarily happen across uh, various international sites. So love to hear that. Love to hear that there's Uribe blood in the pipeline as well. So speaking of minor league depth, we're starting to get a little bit of a sense of what we'll see, especially at the low-level minors. I don't know if you see this, uh, Sleepy, but Scott Merkin had a little bit of a nugget. We saw Peyton Paulette and Noah Schultz, Tanner McDougal, all projected to pitch in Kannapolis now, maybe not right away, but very early on in the season. So initial thoughts on that bit of breaking news. Yeah, I mean, when I saw that come through the tweet or the following, I know he did have a piece um, as well with Everett Tiford, but seeing those names grouped together, like, I mean, that that's the uh, the building blocks for a very exciting rotation down in Kannapolis. You know, Schultz barely pitched after being drafted last year. Paulette didn't pitch and McDougal also didn't pitch because they were coming back from, from injury. So, I mean, I know for us, very exciting to just get eyes on these guys consistently to where that we can follow their starts, track that. I know they're going to be on innings limits, so that goes without saying that they're not going to be throwing six and seven like in April. But, you know, just to see them in game action against, especially for Schultz and McDougal, like probably, you know, some pretty advanced competition. I mean, especially coming out of high school or injury, whatnot, like it'll be exciting. I mean, they're going to have at least three fifths of a very good should be very good starting staff down in Kannapolis. So let's take a break. We have more to get to on the Future Sox podcast. I want Sleepy's thoughts on a few things. James Fegan put out a, a good report, per usual, for The Athletic, talking about some uh, insightful quotes provided by Andy Barquette, the organization's uh, hitting coordinator that oversees the operation with the White Sox. So more White Sox baseball coming your way. If you're a Patreon member, you don't get the commercials, so consider that. But thanks so much for sticking around and hanging with us. We have Sleepy Harold, James Fox, Mike Rankin with you on the Future Sox podcast. There's no I in team, but there is one in Indeed. And that's the hiring platform that you need to build yours. When you're hiring, you need Indeed. Instead of spending hours on multiple job sites searching for candidates with the right skills, Indeed's a powerful hiring platform that can help you do it all. One of the things I love about Indeed is that it makes hiring all in one place so easy because Indeed does the hard work for you. They show you the candidates whose resumes on Indeed fit your description immediately after you post so you can hire faster. Join more than 3 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. Start hiring now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash sports. Offer good for a limited time. Claim your $75 credit now at Indeed.com slash sports. That's Indeed.com slash sports And support the show by saying that you heard it on this podcast. Indeed.com slash sports. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Time to talk more White Sox baseball related to the top 100 prospect list. Now, Future Sox is going to release theirs sometime in February, working on it currently. But the thing that I wanted to throw your way is how you perceive the way the White Sox get to the next step in their rebuild. And it's happening at the early part of this year because we're going to see again that the White Sox are ranked low among all 30 teams in Major League Baseball at their farm system. It's been a process, and I I know that I've been preaching patience when we're trying to evaluate the White Sox organization. 
But this is what happens when the White Sox have done things a certain way for so long. And then to all of a sudden shift strategy, there's going to be a transitional period. And we're living it. We've been living it since 2019. Prospects graduate. The White Sox get a new front office, essentially, who are overseeing the operation and gathering resources for the farm system. And we're seeing young players filter it through the international classes as well as in the draft. So that's where the White Sox stand. And it kind of results in really bad records on the minor league side. Every affiliate was under 500 last year. And especially in Charlotte, there's not a lot of major league ready talent. And that also probably played a role in uh, the fact that the White Sox didn't really make a lot of trades at the deadline or in the offseason because where's the value? However, that could very well change over the next couple of seasons, given where the development is in a lot of their core young players. So let's get to this. Let's talk about where... The White Sox rank, according to Baseball America. James, I want to throw it to you first because we do have the Fegan article talking about Romy and Colas, but I want to get a sense uh, of the top 100 couple of names in Oscar Colas and Colson Montgomery, as well as what you saw uh, provided by Baseball America regarding the top 30 for the White Sox. Yeah, so I have the handbook, and a lot of people don't yet, but like I would recommend, um, like if you want the handbook, order it through Baseball America because they send you the PDF of the whole thing, which I found interesting. So it's common knowledge now that like Colson Montgomery's 39th overall on that list, and then Colas was 89th. They're pretty high on Colson. Um, a lot of people are that we've spoken to as well. They've they've bumped him up. His BA grade is a 60 scouting grade now, like overall. So, I mean, he's going to keep climbing as guys graduate. I would imagine if everything goes well, like Colson Montgomery is a top 25 prospect in baseball, like to end this year. So, and then Colas, obviously, we don't really know, I guess, like how long he's even going to be on the list because I expect him to be in the big leagues, but they're fairly high on him too. I mean, he got there in one season. Sleepy, let me ask you this. Oscar, we asked this question, I think in August last year when Colas was clearly playing at a high level at a high level minor league affiliate we said is it possible that this guy is going to be the White Sox opening day right fielder in 2023 now given all that you know about Oscar Colas and then how the organization views Colas do you think this is the right move they've cleared the way for him to take the job and run with it obviously it's dependent upon how he performs and does in spring training and I'm sure that's even mentioned somewhat in the uh, in the Barquette piece, like of just making sure he's prepared each day, not just for playing in games, but his you know pregame work, you know the hitting drills, the field, all that, everything that goes into being a professional baseball player. I am fine to, to say, like to me, it makes sense that okay, you're high on the guy, you need some left-handed pop in the lineup, you need a right fielder. Oscar Colas can do all of that. So like I, I get from the, the point of like, okay, let him see if he runs with it. My only concern is like, let's say he necessarily has like a, okay to, you know, average spring, not great. Like, are they still just going to run with that? Like they don't at this point to me, like there's not really a fallback plan if it doesn't go according to their plan. It's okay. It's always a right to be a little skeptical on like, you know, unproven prospects. Oscar had a fantastic year going through three up to three levels. I'd be more comfortable with it if there was like a safer backup plan rather than like, 
uh, Gavin Sheets, Larry Garcia, Jake Marinsnick, Billy Hamilton, you know, Victor Reyes, like that. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's why I kept kind of talking about Adam Duvall. I think yeah. a guy like that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I think it's very clear now, like he's, he, he could make up to 10 million as the Red Sox center fielder. Um, the White Sox were not going to do that, obviously. But so like, here's my question for you and me and Mike have talked about this. I just, and maybe the Fegan piece led some credence to it. They have to be looking at stuff in spring training to determine whether or not he's ready other than just like spring's training stats. Like I hate the idea of like winning a job in spring training because we just like kind of know how meaningless it is. Now spring training is, is meaningful and people have been in my Twitter mentions, like not understanding my point here. Like the, the players need to be there because they, they need to be ready. Um, and we kind of saw like what happened last year, but just because a guy hits 480, like in Glendale, like doesn't mean that he should come North with the club because that, or vice versa. Right. So I feel like they have to commit to Oscar Colas and then these other things, like, is he getting his cage work in on time? Like, is he doing his out outfield drills? Like, is, you know, are he doing, is he doing the things that he needs to do in order to be a professional? Like, I really hope it's more slanted towards that instead of like, Hey, let's see if Oscar Colas does better than Gavin Sheets does from a statistical perspective this spring. Yeah. And I, there was a part in the Fegan uh, Barquette piece that I found interesting. And it was where Andy Barquette loosely like alluded to Oscar's kind of, you know, approach during games last year where he's just going up there, like believing he's better than everybody, every, you know, all the pitchers that are throwing to him and not necessarily like with like a game plan. So maybe that's kind of the other aspect is like to this point, like you've gotten by on like natural ability of just being better than everybody. Now you're going to a competition level where, you know, if pitchers aren't above you, like they're, they could be well above you in some regards. So like you need to be prepared, not just like, Hey, my natural ability is going to, you know, propel me past this. Like that, that was the part I found interesting. So here's the exact quote, and then I want, and then I have a question for you and for Mike. So, it, within the James Fegan piece of the Athletic, Andy Barquette, minor league hitting coordinator, who who me and Mike have talked to on the podcast, just talking about Cola said, "There's so much bat speed and there's so much ability there that he's kind of like an outlier." To get Oscar to follow a game plan, I don't think he's there yet. He's just so good that he's like, yeah, that's the game plan. Fine. Give me the bat. I'm going to kill this guy. There's a lot of dudes that are like that, and that's okay. That works for him. So until that stops working, I think that he's going to. He's going to go out there and compete. He believes that the club in his bag is better than that ball that the guy is throwing. That's kind of where he is right now. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. So my question to you two, like, based on that, I guess would just be like, do you think like with the issues that we think he might have, right? Like maybe he's going to strike out too much. Maybe he's not going to walk enough. Do you think sending him to Charlotte like even solves any of that stuff? Or should they just commit to him and play him in the big leagues? Because regardless of how long they send him to Charlotte, my thought is that he'll still have those struggles like no matter what. Yeah, I mean, I think for him going to Charlotte and let's say like, I mean, if you want to look even, what was it, like a nine-game sample he had last year, like where the, the strikeout rate, rate was high, but, you know, he was just, he crushed the ball. So, like, if he goes to Charlotte and he's not facing better competition, like how, how is he supposed to learn and adapt? I don't think it makes sense. Or, like, even the I've seen some of, like, people think, like, the service time argument, like that's something I don't 
think that it should really even be entertained. But going to Charlotte, to me, for Oscar Colas, like, and if he's just going to go down there and mash homers, like, what, what good does that really do for him? It's really unless he's just in spring training, just doesn't seem prepared or anything like that. And it's kind of like a wake-up call message. Like, that's the only real reason, I think, that that might be entertained. James, when I hear you read that quote, I think immediately of Seiya Suzuki last season, beginning with the Chicago Cubs, dominated in Japan prior to coming to Major League Baseball and relied on his instinct and skill set to defeat pitchers at the big league level when he first came here because it was him figuring out what he could do well and then pitchers recognizing his strengths and adjusting. Now, for Oscar Colas... In AAA, maybe pitchers do have a game plan on Colas, but again, when you talk about Colas's skill set versus AAA pitching, Colas will win just based on raw talent, and that's what we're trying to get to here, and the White Sox understand that at this point of his development, he is a major league player who hasn't seen major league pitching yet, so allow him to fail and try and fix it. That's what we have to anticipate, in my opinion, this year, because the White Sox, like we talked about earlier, put a lot of stock in Oscar Colas being a part of the plan in 2023, clearly based on the way that they approached this offseason. So, James, when I say that the value in Oscar Colas right now is at the big league level, however, we have to anticipate failure because the league adjusts. I love that you mentioned the accountability factor that Fegan talked about in the article that Andy Barquette referenced. That's what will keep the entire White Sox roster on their best behavior is accountability because that's what's been sold to us, James and Sleepy, this offseason about the new coaching staff. It's not just Oscar Colas. I think Oscar Colas will adjust because he'll have to. Yeah, for sure. And and I mean, like, he's going to be like the eight hitter, right? I mean, it, th- that's the thing I think people like maybe don't realize. And like, while I, I wanted insulation too, and look, maybe, maybe we get some, right. That isn't named Jake Marisnik just cause like, I think they need a right-handed hitting outfielder anyway, that could play all three spots and, you know, potentially spell Oscar Colas. But I mean, Colas hit lefties in the minors too. I just, I kind of think like, you know, you're not asking this kid to be your five hitter. Like this isn't Andrew Vaughn, you know, what, two years ago where they, they skipped two minor league levels, but I feel like they were also kind of depending on him to be one of their better players. Like with Colas, it's going to be, you know, you're, you're hitting down in the lineup. He's a good defender. So that part of it's fine. Right. And it's, it's probably an upgrade over what they've done and what they could do otherwise. So I just, I feel like it's easy to, you know, to transition him. So that, that part, that part I'm not worried about. I'm curious to see him in spring training just to kind of see what he looks like. Um, I, I was, I was just curious to see him last year. And I think he, you know, he overachieved and blew through everybody's expectations. I feel like everybody that we talked to on the podcast or people that would see him like Keith Lawsaw on the backfields, whose you know, opinion I generally trust on hitters. And they all just talked about the bat speed and the big power. And, you know, it kind of came out like, yeah, this guy might be pretty good. And he was a mystery. So, you know, I think, I think we're going to get a chance to see him and I think it's pretty exciting. Yeah. And I think too, like, especially like James, like you mentioned that he's not going to be thrust into like, Hey, Oscar, you're the three hitter, carry the offense for us. Like it's go out there, you know, 
play some solid defense and right, which the Sox haven't had. And I mean, how far do you want? Like the first before the first, you know, first Adam Eaton trade, <laughs> you know, shoring up that in that regard and just like, OK, like, you know, you're learning to hit major league pitching like you're just doing this. It's a less pressure environment, I guess, if like, you know, all things considered, um, I think it's just like, you know, and even too, like we've mentioned, like we want some more just insurance policies. It's, I think, kind of like running with two unknowns, essentially, like with right field and second base, like on rookie unproven whatnot. I think that's the part that kind of, you know, makes people leery that like, hey, we're supposed to be contending, but, you know, we're just, I mean, not that teams don't, you know, put rookies in places, those spots in the lineup, like that happens. Like, so the Astros do it last year, Jeremy Pena is the starting shortstop. Things like that are commonplace. It's just, I guess, the, the two glaring holes that have been glaring holes. Now you're depending upon unproven guys to fill the glaring holes. It just, I, I guess, I can see why it just seems repetitive. We're just trying the same, I guess, of trying something different rather than first baseman in the outfield. Well, that's where, like... Yeah, like I think another outfielder was more like second base, for example, right? Like I have less of an issue with them doing it at second. And me and Mike have talked about this like often just because I thought that like it was tough to obtain like somebody way better, right? So like while we don't know how Romy Gonzalez or Lenin Sosa are going to fare, like I would still just go with that over paying $6 million for a Josh Harrison type because like I think either of those guys can do that for you. So barring them trading for someone out of nowhere, like that can hit left-handed and play second base for you, you know, that's, you know, young or like a Joey Wendell type or something like, I'm not really that concerned about second base. I'm still more concerned about the outfield and, you know, they might be sound in the outfield if Colas is, you know, is decent in his first year. Yeah. Agreed. I mean, I am, I'm all for like, I think second base can be filled internally with just we've seen the development from some of these you know shortstops Sosa um Z Rodriguez I mean even Colson if you want to get super aggressive but I mean like they seem to have guys in the pipeline that theoretically Romy that could fill this position so it was less of a concern because to me like second base is not a high offensive output position anyway like they've really been missing that in the outfield so I'm, I'm totally with you there As we looked at the Baseball America Top 30 for the Chicago White Sox, as we mentioned a little bit earlier in the podcast, I saw Lenin Sosa drop a few spots, and it's not dramatic, but he's still in the top 10. And James has been a big fan of Lenin's 2022. He's been pretty adamant about the fact that, dude, this guy mashed at one of the hardest places to hit in all of minor league baseball in AA Birmingham, and yet Lenin still is feeling like he may not be one who can handle himself at the big league level. And that's just the opinions of some sleepy. What's your opinion of Lenin Sosa at this point in his development? I mean, like last year was like, <laughs> um, kind of like a total 180 from what he'd done. Like it always taken him time to adjust to a level. He'd never really been like overmatched. So to, so to speak, like where he'd always like, he'd always been assigned aggressively and he'd always held his own. But last year, just kind of like it was it was really the newfound power hitting in Birmingham that kind of was like, whoa, like where where did this come from? And I know Jim Margulis had a piece that I'm sure vegan, like where they explained how he changed the approach and like, OK, he seems like this seems like a real thing. 
And I know the very small sample sizes he had um, in like the sporadic playing time in the majors didn't probably leave a good leave a good first impression. But then, you know, he goes to Charlotte, took him a little bit of time to adjust. And then sure enough, he starts hitting in Charlotte again. So he just seems to be a guy that he has this confidence with the bat that you know, we we had seen displayed, but it was the really the power that kind of set him apart last year. Like, I think I think he's like a, a truly like a viable candidate for second base, like where he can handle the position and what you get with him from the bat that assuming this the newfound power and the approach are permanent, they're here to stay like that's to me that, you know, that kind of sets him apart right now. So like to see him kind of like skidding back a bit on some of the some of the pro like the rankings is it, kind of odd you know i i don't really know unless they got scared off maybe by like the small sample size of the sporadic playing time in the majors like it just kind of confuses me like it, like to pick that little bit out of like the whole body of work from last season so this is what i've been saying and it, it doesn't like fans like thinking lenny and sosa sucks because of 36 plate appearances is is ridiculous but like you know, like look that's like what fans do so that's fine like i he, you know, he went to Charlotte, figured it out, and was pretty much like just as good at Charlotte as he was at Birmingham. So he did make a significant swing change last year. He got more into his lower half to create power. And Andy Barquette kind of talked about him last year. Our uh, colleague Jim Margulis, you know, saw him, I think, either in Birmingham or, you know, when they were in Nashville this year. It was just like a total difference. Like, the White Sox have the 28th ranked system in baseball, and this guy is 10th in that system. I just like, I just don't buy that. Like, it, it doesn't make any sense to me. So I think it's likely that, like, when he goes back to Charlotte and he's really good in the first half, we're going to be like, oh, why isn't Lenny and Sosa up playing? It just, I don't know. I like to see professionals having him ranked like where they have him ranked, like, gives me pause because I'm like, holy cow, like, am I way wrong on this? Because, I mean, to me, like, I, I've, comped him to to Marcus Simeon I mean because he reminds me of him and you know his his rise like after a swing change in the minor leagues I just like feel like it's different he can defend at second and third and could probably play short too if you wanted him to I just I don't really understand so like one of my other questions with that is like we see Brian Ramos rise up these lists and look Brian Ramos is two years younger which might be your answer Mike for this but Brian Ramos, people think is like third. He's like third in the system. He's a lock for like that third spot, either him or Schultz. And he hasn't even played at double A yet. So I just like don't understand really what the difference is when Sosa's already done it at double A. I, I don't know. The way that the other offensive prospects in this system are being ranked right now is just questionable to me. So I'm curious to see all of them go and duke it out on the field at their respective levels. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, that's sleepy. I'm telling you, this is what we discuss when we rank our top 30. How do we get to uh, the end game based on all the qualifications and proximity to the big leagues and projections, age, all of it. And I loved your opinion on uh, Brian Ramos when we last talked. And since then, he's developed a more consistent frame. And I, I think he's added size. I, I know he's added size, but I think with that added size, it's helped his projection. And the fact that his barrel through the zone, like the way that it spends in the zone, his contact rate, the uh, amount of pop that he has in his frame, 
that he's showcased at every level to this point suggests that there was more projection than Lenin um, in that respect. Just given from what James was talking about, Brian Ramos compared to Lenin Sosa, what's your take on the way that uh, the disparaging uh, scouting reports suggest about the yeah, team? Yeah, I mean, I th- well, because even thinking about this now, I, was, I just had it in my head. I'm like, well, you know, the defensive questions that Ramos had going into – like, eh, can he play third? Is he an out, like a corner outfielder? Is he a first baseman? That seems to, there seems to be more confidence now that he can play third, which obviously a third, the corner power bat, like he has the arm for that. So like maybe that and like the age helps set him apart. But like even thinking that too, I'm like, well, Lenin Sosa was playing, he was playing shortstop in second base. I mean, that's up the middle, you know? So, I mean, unless it's really just, in age and whereas maybe it's more of like, whereas Ramos had kind of excelled further than Lenin, Lenin Sosa had like given the same, like the same aggressive assignments, you know, and then performance at levels. I mean, that's the only thing I think that could really, that would set them apart is that maybe Ramos's track record of, both being aggressively assigned, whilst being younger than the competition he's facing, he's just had better offensive output immediately over Sosa, who really burst out last year. Yeah, I feel like it it might be getting lost a little bit too, just like how Sosa finished at Charlotte too. Yeah, because like when remember he got called up after a torrid run at Birmingham where he had like a 150 WRC plus like playing in the middle infield. I think he had like 14 homers or so gets called up to the big leagues. It was a huge story, but then like he doesn't play at all. And then he went right to Charlotte for the first time and underwent his typical struggles, like at the start of a level. And then he was up in the big leagues again, right? For like a game or two where he didn't really play that often either. And then after that, he was awesome. It, It was like a the same thing, like a 150 WRC plus in Charlotte to close out his year. So if he goes according to trend, he's going to be like the second baseman or shortstop for the Knights and do the exact same thing. And then we're going to be like, oh, why isn't Lennon Sosa in the big leagues playing somewhere or even as like an extra? It's just, I I, I don't know. This is like crazy yeah. to me. I mean, I think to me too, where I would lean, I guess, I don't know who you guys, I, I think like Romy might be like the, in-house favorite right now but if the adjustment period always takes lane some time i would like to see the adjustment period for him happen like in april rather than like oh he's got to make it again in may or in june and then it's just the same cycle of going through the same process like just start him early let him figure it out because he's done this throughout his career like i would just like to see that like you know he went down he excelled like he went back to birmingham last year he excelled the guy's he's showing you what he can do so just let him do it. The perfect role for Romy is the Larry yep. Garcia role. Like, and Larry Garcia signed and he's on the team. And like, you know, could they DFA him with like a different manager? Like if he's bad, possibly, <laughs> but, but I, but I think he starts, I think he's on the White Sox to start the year, but in an ideal world, Romy plays center, plays short, plays second. He's that guy. And then second base remains open for one of your, your prospects, either Sosa or Rodriguez or whoever just to briefly touch on the whole Leary thing, like the contract isn't great. And maybe he does, if he underperforms again, he does get eventually DFA. I'm of the belief that an organization should be able to develop or have a utility type player come through the system. And like, I think Romy 
is like that's an he'd be an ideal candidate for that. And even like I know Andy Burkett kind of touched on it. Like he's he can play here, here, and here. You know, he's probably better in like at second. So he's a like your Swiss Army knife kind of guy and like a league minimum player that you could theoretically use your other money on bigger needs. Yeah, maybe. Ro- I mean, Romy proved to play center field at the big league level. The athleticism Andy Bar- Barquette was raving about what Romy can bring to the big league level in the article provided by James Fegan. So all of this information is taken into context because yeah, they're higher on their own guys internally, but it, it makes sense because we see the type of athleticism Romy provides on a day-to-day basis. Guys, this was fun. Sleepy, thanks so much for joining us on the Future Sox podcast, and thanks for all your work. James, what are we talking about next week? I have no idea. I don't know. I, I don't, I'm glad we didn't bring up Bob Nightingale talking about Nick Madrigal, so that, that's probably my favorite part of today's Dude, podcast. That's we're not... that. that's like an unwritten rule we're not supposed to bring up madrigal hypothetically back to the white Sox ever or bob nightingale or bob nightingale i mean that's fair but the whole magical thing come on dude what is that i don't know what are we doing anyway that's uh sleepy heroes steve hasman james fox you can follow him at james fox 917 on twitter my name's Mike Rankin at Rankin906 on Twitter. We're at Future Sox as well. Email us if you're interested. Ask us questions, but refrain from asking about Nick Magical, please. You can email us at futuresocks at gmail.com and uh, we'll get your questions right on the podcast. Really appreciate everything. Become a patron if you can. Soxmachine.com for that information. Next Tuesday, we will not be talking about Nick Magical, but we'll have another Future Sox podcast for you. Thanks so much for tuning in. We'll talk to you all next week.